Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, you're in for a treat. On the mics today are some of Australia's leading business and economics commentators who will get you closer to the inner workings and thinking of Australia's investment and business elite than an accountant with a fancy econometrics model. It's crunch time for a large swathe of the consumer and discretionary spending economy, and we'll hear plenty of that shortly. But conversely, the luxury goods sector is booming and some consumer segments won't be smashed. They've got plenty of bucks in their pocket and still able to spend freely if they choose or can be convinced. Couple that with a polarising paper written by the Federal Treasurer recently advocating values-based capitalism and everything about the consumer economy and mindset at the moment starts to look like a bowl of spaghetti. So on the mics to help us unravel that spaghetti is some of the most tapped commentators in the market. Sky News business editor Ross Greenwood is joined by the AFR's economics editor John Keogh and the West Australian's business editor Sarah Jane Tasker. And boy, WA is behaving freakishly versus the rest of the country. Possibly nothing new there, Sarah, but we're going to get to the bottom of that. Uh, but let's get to this conversation. I think it's going to be very, very fascinating uh, setup for what we could expect this year. Uh, we may just all learn a few things. Welcome to you all. Ross, we might start with you first. Um, recession, no recession, nearly a recession. And is everything going to be crunched? You argue Australia is possibly six months behind the US. So I assume the real turbulence here is yet to come. Welcome, Ross. And, and what's your initial thoughts on where everything's at? Yeah, thanks so much. Um, and I think that's the reality of the situation in Australia. Um, Australia is not likely to go into recession, largely saved by China coming out of COVID and is likely to see the sort of bounce in its economy that we saw here in Australia as consumers get back and start spending again. Um, and therefore, the, the demand for resources, the demand for goods and services from Australia, um, and also the return of students to Australia from China and also travellers internationally. This is all going to help leave Australia not in recession. But there will be a downturn, and the downturn will occur is because of the rise of interest rates, coming from a quarter of a percent, probably ending up somewhere, the cash rate, at above 4%, which means mortgages are sitting up around 6% or more. So, you know, no longer can people borrow at 1%. Now, given the vast majority of people are on variable rate home loans, their payments are rising, in many cases, on typical mortgages, somewhere between fifteen dollars and $20,000 a year after tax of extra money they've got to come up with, then you've got prices generally rising, and then on top of that, energy prices in particular. So all of this means at some point, the savings of Australians start to run out, and there is a brick wall. Now, where that brick wall is ahead in terms of their spending, and therefore discretionary consumer spending in particular, is affected by that. While Australians have got jobs, they're generally okay. They will cut back, but they won't go broke. It's when unemployment starts to rise that the real concerns occur for Australia's economy over the medium term. Unemployment, Ross, though, what's the, what's your, the, 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 the thinking around that? Well, you know, there's been a shortage of workers in Australia. And so businesses, you know, most of their sentiments up until now have shown that they still want to hire more workers because... They're desperately short, but that again will run out at some point. 
either A, technology will replace the labour, the more expensive labour costs, or B, what will happen is that businesses will just learn to do without that labour. Uh, and so you can already see, particularly in the technology space, um, as those companies have needed to cut back costs, um, there have been uh, redundancies, big redundancy programs already announced. And that's, if you like, almost the tip of the iceberg of, of what happens and especially as that consumer hits that brick wall at some stage this year, then a lot of other companies might also need to consider their workforce and their numbers as well. Um, Ross, you also you touched on a little bit, but those, I think it's about 800,000 mortgages that are coming off fixed rates, uh, and there's a lot of concern around what happens there because the, the, uh, the cost of servicing those mortgages obviously jumps. Uh, you think it might be a little bit exaggerated, the concerns around the fixed rate uh, um, cliff? Yeah, I think so. And the reason for that is because banks right now are also desperate for new mortgage business. And even though they're raising interest rates every time the Reserve Bank increases rates, um, there's still very hot competition. And so, you know, while the official rates of banks now are creeping up towards 8% for a standard variable rate loan, which nobody pays, of course, because you should negotiate less, there are still some banks that are sitting around about 5% or so. So there is negotiability. There is an ability to be able to go out and get a deal. So this is also something that people have got to, to recognise and understand. And also, those people who had those fixed rate mortgages were being assessed on their ability to pay at much higher rates. While those people have jobs, they're fine. The real issue, as I say, is when people start to lose jobs. That's when the hurt genuinely comes, and that's when people start to go broke. So in terms of discretionary spending, Ross, you do think it's going to get choppy this year. Where's the biggest choppy? Where's the biggest chop happening, do you think? What's your sense? My sense is, I mean, you'll see it in retail. And and even though I will say that uh, some of the department store retailing numbers up until now have been astonishingly good. Meyer is a good one, right? A good example of that. Oh, well, that's precisely right. Meyer is a great example of it. But then you even go to what happens to furniture stores, what happens to electronic stores. And the reason for it is if people aren't going out and buying new houses, you can see first home buyers right now are at their lowest levels for, for more than seven years. You can know that the new housing starts are, are actually falling dramatically. So that all means that the ability to consume furniture and white goods and air conditioners and whatever it might be, that that is also being reduced at this point. So there's some areas where you get a bit of that discretionary fall in, in spending. But on top of that, it also has to come in basic subscriptions. As people go through their bank accounts, go through their own personal accounts to figure out what they can do without. But as I say, that's cutting back. That is not cutting out because it's cutting out comes when that unemployment starts to rise and people go from two incomes in a house to one household to one, or indeed people go to no income in that house. That's the problem. Mm. Uh, John Keogh, uh, I'm assuming you're in sort of broad agreement with Ross. What's your, what's your macro view on uh, recession, no recession this year? But there is a twist here, and I think you've got a really interesting observation about the high end holding up. But first up, your sort of outlook for, for this year, uh, recession, no recession, discretionary spending. How does that look to you, John? Well, I think there's definitely going to be a sharp slowdown in Australia uh, over the next 18 months. Uh, we'll probably start to feel that noticeably in the second half of 2023 because of those relatively aggressive interest rate rises we've seen, you know, cash rate heading up to around about 4% or so. Um, you can't have that sort of 
uh, reduction in disposable income for one third of people who actually have a mortgage and, and not have any impact. So I think it's definitely going to be felt, but it's it's going to be quite an uneven distribution. Um, if you look across the household sector, there's some households who are very cashed up, and there's been some excellent research by some of the investment banks showing a lot of the $300 billion of extra savings who we uh, that we built up during the pandemic from stimulus payments and being in lockdown, not being able to go out, is mainly held by older and wealthier households. Now, the sort of people who are in the mortgage belt who might be struggling a bit under the weight of inflation and interest rate rises, they don't have a lot of extra savings buffer. In fact, they've exhausted them. So I do think that's going to show that we get two types of shoppers out there or consumers, people who are not really feeling the interest rate rises. Remember, two-thirds of people don't have a mortgage, although one-third rent, and they'll still be feeling that. But the one-third of people who actually own outright, typically older, typically better off with assets and maybe a bit of money in the bank as well, you'd have to think they're going to carry on spending largely as usual. So it's a very uneven distribution, and I think we're even seeing this um, across some of the results of corporate Australia in the last few weeks. Um, you've had the new Coles CEO talking about the tale of two cities between the premium customers and then the other customers are looking for value. They're more price conscious. And even Penfolds was saying recently as well, they're selling more $30 bottles of wine, but less $12 bottles of wine, which again speaks to the idea that there's two types of consumers out there. But I agree with Ross. I think Australia can avoid recession uh, largely because of China. We're getting a lot of people coming back into the country. Uh, so not only is China buying our commodities in, in high amounts, but also we had a net inflow of about 400,000 migrants last year, which is a lot larger than what we anticipate, probably getting about another 350,000 this year, according, according to Westpac, which means at an aggregate level, it's, ha it's hard to have a recession if you've got that many people and consumers in Australia. There might be a per capita recession. On an individual basis, incomes might go backwards for a couple of quarter or GDP per capita. But I think in aggregate, uh, the economy will probably muddle through. Well, both you and Ross have, have mentioned China um, and the the it's coming back economically. Is there any 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 concerns or risk around the geopolitical situation, though, that may affect that? Oh, absolutely. We've seen some very bolshy statements out of China in the last few days from their new foreign minister um, and also the president, Xi Jinping, who is, uh, as Kevin Rudd pointed out, he couldn't remember a time where a Chinese leader has actually called out the United States by name and warned them to basically back off and retreat. Uh, the new foreign minister also used some very hawkish language too. So there is definitely risks there uh, geopolitically between the US and China over Taiwan. That could become a flashpoint, but that's one of those black swan events that if you're a business, it's it's hard to build that into your business models. If you're an investor, it's hard to price that in as well, but it's something people need to be aware of. There are heightened geopolitical tensions at the moment. Um, and, you know, that could impact consumers if things obviously escalate um, over the coming months or years. But it's really hard to know when that actually happens. Yeah, right. Uh, Ross, um, uh, John talked about this uh, sort of two-speed economy, if you like, with uh, cashed-up consumers and, and, and the less those that are tightening. Um, you've got some interesting observations there around luxury goods and retail, right? It's sort of, it's going, it's t it shouldn't be as good as it, as it has been, Ross. Talk us through that. So it's almost, in, in some ways, it's in various ways you see these two-speed economies. So one example is even in the States. 
So New South Wales and Victoria right now are feeling the impact of lower numbers of housing starts, for example. Whereas if you think of Queensland and Western Australia, with commodity prices having boomed, um, you know, really in both those states, things are pretty good. So this almost goes back to the period almost post the global financial crisis, where you've got, you know, the, the, the big populous states struggling um, under the weight of the interest rate rises, uh, but you've got the two commodity-producing states actually doing quite well at the moment. Um, but then you go even to, as John says, the amount of savings and the amount of equity that's been built up um, by wealthier families. And, and the anecdote here is really to look at the luxury goods sector in Australia. So when effectively the, the geopolitical tensions with China um, and Australia rose uh, coming back about six years ago, you saw a, a, a departure of Chinese tourism, of Chinese students. This added to some of the problems of labour shortages Australia had, you know, sort of after the pandemic and the, and the lockdowns. But the interesting thing about it was that the Gucci's, the Chanel's, the Bally's, whatever it might be, uh, the Givenchy, the LVMH, Louis Vuitton, all of those were expected to basically die because there was no um, Chinese support for those businesses here. But oddly enough, they haven't not died. They've actually got bigger and expanded in most of our major capital cities because they discovered a new market, which was cashed-up Australians. And so all of a sudden, cashed-up Australians replaced the Chinese in these luxury goods. So what John's talking about with wine can be replicated in a range of different areas. It doesn't matter whether it's people who have gone and bought in places such as Noosa or, or the Sunshine Coast or the Gold Coast, or, or it goes to the, the, the fact that people are buying luxury goods and very expensive cars and very expensive stereo kit. All of this is a part of the fact that there are many Australians who have seen significant increases in their wealth, not only through property, but it could be even cryptocurrency or it could be tech shares. They've all been a part of this sudden consumption that Australia has seen, which we really have never seen in our history. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I had a conversation uh, late last week, actually, with um, uh, with Roy Morgan, uh, who's forecast uh, uh, their, their spending um, outlook for the next uh, 12 months, Ross Honeywell, who works on the this this consumer group called the Neos. It's a higher spending um, mindset. So they, they, Roy Morgan's carving the market up now into traditional spending, which fits in with everything uh, we've talked about so far. There's 10 million of those Australians, but there's 5 million Neos, and and they spend more freely, more liberally, and in fact, Morgan's Roy Morgan's forecasting them to spend about. 260 odd percent more this in the next 12 months than than traditionalists so it gets this two-step different mindsets different uh socio demographics it gets quite a it, it gets to we gets to the spaghetti we talk about so we'll, we'll I'm, I'm i'm fascinated just to see how how this all plays out and how you guys think it's going to play out in the next 12 months we'll have a little bit more of a delve into that but sarah um with all this as context um you're in wa and uh we may even have uh, a three-speed economy over there WA is living with a completely different set of uh, economic conditions and consumer sentiment, or is it? So get, what, what's happening over there versus what you see uh, in, in the national economy, Sarah, and, and welcome. Yeah, it, look, it is very different over here in the Wild West. When we look at recent consumer sentiment and business confidence surveys, and then we dig into locally specific data, WA is always more optimistic than the rest of the country. And clearly, and as Ross touched on, it is like we are a resources state. And so our sector is what, you know, keeps our economy alive. And so while there is, you know, some concerns around Chinese demand for our key exports, 
the prices of these key commodities are still really strong and they still underpin a robust economy over here. So we just had the local Chamber of Commerce and Industry release its outlook for the economy and they have said the state is really well placed to weather the storm of a possible worldwide recession. So there are challenges over the next 12 months, but like during the GFC, like WA is expected to escape the worst of it. I mean, the number of West Australians in full-time work continues to grow. There's a massive skill shortage shortage over here and across industries, like I'm not just talking about in mining. If we look at our domestic economy, like it's 12% bigger than it was pre-COVID and businesses are investing. Like we keep signing off on, you know, new large projects. So there's just all those signs of things continuing on. So let's all move to WA by the sounds of it. Um, the the uh, inside that inside everything you've just talked about, Sarah. The um, there's also uh, this notion of a two step, two speed economy. The yo- younger consumers, um, I think you made made the point that they're um, they're still pretty upbeat. Everyone's still still upbeat, but the um, buy now pay later buttons are uh, have been getting it sort of a workout too. Yeah, look, when we talk to local retailers, they tell us the young consumer is still spending and spending healthily. I'm not talking about that ridiculously priced high-end gear, but also not your bargain basement buys. We're still talking brand names, generally brand names on sale because there seems to be a sale every other week these days, but it is the buy now, pay later that is getting a hammering by these young spenders. So that then does also raise some questions and concerns about when the pay later kicks in for them. Mm. Ross, um. Uh, you also think there's some some hidden spending reserves in an, in the consumer economy now. Um, new consumer money coming out of digital assets we don't see. Um, what do you mean by that, and how significant is it? Oh, look, I think it's real. I think this is that uh, younger consumer you spoke about, that five percent or so um, that have really made their money very rapidly uh, during, if you like, the the tech boom um, that the stock market has seen. Now that really is starting to come off in a in a big hurry. Um, but also those who made their money out of, you know, sort of, if you like, the cryptocurrencies. A lot of those people, smart people, would have turned that money into cash. Um, those who didn't, who were the true believers, if you like, um, they're probably now starting to um, question their decisions of not cashing in much, much earlier. But it is interesting to see that, you know, many people have recognised that the only way to basically monetize the, the profits they've made out of Bitcoin or uh, Ethereum or out of uh, some sort of a tech share that they've been in has been to actually turn it into cash. Um, but that has really fueled in many ways the spending that's been seen, especially from very young consumers who were big believers in these types. I mean, older consumers were not believers in cryptocurrency. They were not believers of many of the new tech shares that came out. And so there has been wealth created. There will be ultimately wealth lost out of those asset classes as well. But it, it just has meant that there's, you know, if, if you ever wander around town and wonder where is all this money coming from, in many cases, when you see it in very young people's uh, hands, that's where it's come from. Plus also the fact that many younger, highly educated people going into professional careers have had significant pay increases compared with their older counterparts, effectively, as companies have really um, struggled to find the talent and have been prepared to pay that talent significant amounts to get them in place. And, and again, this is where consumption comes from as well. Well, it, it is fascinating. So for those that got their money out of their crypto wallets into the bank account fast enough, they've done all right, Ross, and it's, it's, it's a really good point. And, and it probably answers questions for me where I sometimes look around and go, where does the money come from? Good point. Um, John, shall we get into some um, uh, some meaty stuff for policy and economic wonks? Um, you wrote a piece recently after the, after the Federal Treasurer 
uh, Jim Chalmers published a long call to action for business and economists um, in which he advocates for value based values based capitalism. Now, you know, please explain. Let's let's just help us out there. What is it? What what does all this mean, John? Well, it, it it does depend on your interpretation, but broadly, I think it probably means more government involvement in the economy or working with the private sector across a whole lot of areas like the energy transition, like public housing, um, uh, also other areas across disability support, aged care, these sorts of areas. So I do think it means probably a more interventionist government, uh, but sometimes working hand in glove with the private sector as well. And Chalmers, while he cops some flack for this essay from economic rationalists, he actually may be onto something in a sort of populist sort of political sense because the millennials and, and the Gen Ys, they're now the biggest voting block of the population. The baby boomers are, are starting to pass. And a lot of these younger generation, they value these sorts of things. It's not all about the bottom line or the dollar. It is also about being involved with brands and organisations that you identify with socially as well on certain social objectives as well. And so I could imagine he's probably seen the research and the polling that this sort of notion that governments and, and businesses need to be doing things for social good be, could be quite popular with a bunch of consumers and, and voters out there. Yeah, and, and so this is, I mean, it, I have to say even in the sector that um, that, that, that I operate in, you know, purpose and, and values is a big, big uh, push. It's come from companies even just to hire talent, right, so to have uh, a very well articulated uh, mission around purpose and and values is is a big big ticket to get people over the line when they're so desperate for talent. So now that they're in, uh, they have to start delivering. Do you think um what will it have any uh, impact in, in say the next federal election? Will is it that shorter term or is it a longer term play, John? Yeah, I don't think it's a short-term trend. I think given it's the younger generations who are pushing it, uh, they're going to be living longer. Now, it's possible that as they get older, they turn more conservative like their parents may have been. But you'd have to think for the foreseeable future, this sort of mission or purpose-driven agenda is going to be here for longer. I mean, we're seeing the superannuation funds who have an enormous amount of capital, about $3.4 trillion dollars, pushing this with ESG as well and other fund managers around the world as um, the world tries to transition to net zero as well. So I, I think it's probably a trend that's going to hang around for quite some time. Uh, I guess the only counter to that would be inflation, uh, and this is what the Conservatives will play on. The Conservatives think that inflation is going to actually um, push for a return to smaller government because the idea that you know more government involvement, intervention, regulation, spending can actually contribute to the inflationary pressures. They're hoping that actually over time that actually you might get a bit of a pullback. People will start to get concerned about government involvement in all these areas and think that it's contributing to inflation pressures. But I, I think that's a very more medium-term play. I think for the now, in the foreseeable future, uh, people want governments and businesses involved in these sort of social and ESG causes. Well, John's absolutely right. This is almost like the battle of the generations. Uh, and, and what's going to happen is that 
younger generations now who feel as though they're getting the hardest end of the deal in regards to the climate they've been left by their parents and grandparents, the tax system they've been left by their parents and grandparents, the fact that in their mind getting a home and owning a home is harder than what their parents and grandparents had. Um, this is really where there is a, a generational battle um, for the money. And this is the reason why um, Jim Chalmers and his essay almost goes to the heart of that. And you can see it in subsequent actions, things such as the superannuation tax um, on funds over $3 million, increasing it to 30% on income, going to the dividend imputation system um, and having companies having share buybacks, not being able to issue frank credits uh, or frank dividends to their shareholders, largely, they say, to older Australians. And it'll come in the future, there's no doubt, because if you go to the whole Labor Party policy over a period of time, the fairness of negatively geared properties, all of these things become a part of that conversation. And you've got to keep going back to that essay because it will give you a sense as to what's to come in terms of the, the economic plan, the agenda of the government, and especially as Jim Chalmers is the treasurer. I want to get to Sarah very shortly because she's got some good observations on what's happening in WA on this front. But Ross, do you, the investment community, uh, investors, uh, markets, uh, are they factoring in this yet? You know, particularly when you have, you know, the boss at BlackRock, what is it, a $2 trillion uh, investment fund out of the US saying uh, basically both uh, ESG, environment and social good, ESG policies are a really, really critical part of how they will uh, allocate money uh, to companies in the future or are now. Um, how does, what's the trickle down? effect on this, Ross? Is it, is it hitting the markets yet? Well, you think about this. It's the fact that the industry super funds are now the dominant players. They have almost overtaken, you know, well, they have overtaken the AMPs and the old colonial mutuals and national mutuals of this world. They're the new mutuals. And so they have an agenda as to where they will allocate their capital to. And that's important to recognise it. So yes, if, if the politics and also the, the people who have the capital are in alignment, then it will certainly change the way in which the economy goes. Now, there is a little caveat to this, I should say. If you have a really serious recession in the world, a lot of this stuff will go out the door. Um, and you could see it even with the war in Ukraine, effectively the scramble to get gas into Europe basically threw out the door a lot of the environmental protocols that were in place. You know, they went back to coal-fired power stations. So the same thing would occur if there was a global recession and the emphasis went on getting people back into work. You would find for a period of time at least that certainly some of the concerns about environmental and social governance um, would certainly probably go by the by. But do understand this is a very long-term trend brought about by younger people who believe they want to see the planet improve into the future. Sarah, you are seeing this play out quite strongly, ironically, in WA of all places. Um, what, what, why? What's happening over there in this, this broader sense of values and, and, um, and ESG policies and so forth? Yeah, it's been really interesting because we look at the resources industry and it's actually really remarkable how they've shifted the cell on their own sector. They have basically come up with this phrase or someone's come up with this phrase, the green transition. And so now every single thing they are doing, they link back to the green transition. Like they're trying to attract and engage this younger, more socially aware, you know, 
like in um audience now i guess like they're, they're trying to appeal to these younger people to a come and work for them because they're they're they all these jobs but also from an investment point of view like look we tick all these boxes and so they throw the word green into just about everything now it's like you know we've got critical minerals that's needed for the green transition um you know like we've we've got this clean energy we've got you know like there's all these kind of words that they're phrasing into it and all the pitch to the broader community now is, is around that and it's really quite interesting and I think because they also have really engaged activist investors now like you've seen that play out with Mark Cannonbrooks at AGL you see it with the huge big global oil and gas companies where you've had activist investors get onto boards agitating for change and so these boards can no longer ignore what these investors want so they're having to set targets they set their own climate targets here like the big companies in australia they set their targets before it was mandated by government a lot of them have also joined on to support a voice the indigenous voice to parliament they've all done that way ahead of the labor government even doing that because they all realize they need to tick all these boxes for future generations well, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, look, if anyone's got any thoughts on how the hell this plays out in terms of the uh, consumer economy, you know, there's a lot of talk uh, in and around um, the sectors that we cover that, you know, people are, are, are walking the talk on this and are changing their buying, beha- buying behaviour based on uh, environmental or social uh, policy that's coming from a company, service, or brand. Um, of course, to Ross's point, it's really interesting, isn't it? When you when you talk about a recession kicking in, maybe uh, the the values sort of get sidelined or postponed for a little bit. And we saw that even with Coles, right? With uh, with the introduction where they banned uh, their plastic shopping bags. Uh, everyone, um, uh, sort of at a theoretical level, uh, said yes, we want that. But when it actually happened, they reversed it because it was too inconvenient for for we the people to do it. So there's there's, there is some convenience uh, trade-offs going on there. Ross, do you have a final quick thought on on, on how uh, this might play out in the consumer economy in terms of uh, brand preference services, companies that, you know, will it bite it? Will it bite in the short term? Uh, no, absolutely. The, the warning here for all companies and for people running businesses or marketing directors, if you do this, absolutely be true to it. Believe it. And when you do it, don't do it as a marketing gimmick or as a tool. Given the fact that ASIC is now watching and the ACCC are watching for greenwashing in companies, Mm. the consequences of being caught out doing this for marketing purposes alone is now going to be dire. And your consumers will turn on you if you do not live the values as well as spruik the values. Now, the reality is, if you actually live the values, do you really need to spruik them? That's an interesting aspect of it as well. Is it a marketing tool? Or is it something that is real inside your organisation? Because I think mm. that one thing that consumers will turn on is hypocrisy. Just as they will turn on politicians when they are hypocritical, they will turn on companies when they are hypocritical. So if you do this, believe in it and live it, as my suggestion to, to companies and to marketing directors. Because if you don't, if it's simply, simply words um, on a page, then be very, very careful and be very wary about the consequences. Well, you're right, and, and it's got to it's got to run through the supply chain. We had a really interesting podcast with the uh, chief marketing officer at Colgate Palmolive a couple of months ago, who has been working on trying to get uh, recycled toothpaste tubes um, uh, sorted. Now, to do that, to make the claim that, that it's 100% recycled, they've had to go right through the supply chain and change all the waste management systems because they couldn't cope with it. And so there was a, there was a, an extra 12 months of getting the supply chain sorted before they can even actually recycle the materials 
bottles that were in in the tube, and that's pretty much what you're talking. Get, get walk the talk before you talk. Um, listen, we've probably got a little bit, just just enough time to cover on one really interesting thing that we've seen coming out of COVID, which of, which of course is, and 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 all of you would have seen it in the company's reporting that this is um this great surge in COVID for online and e-commerce uh, shopping uh, is is taking a step backwards uh, in favour of um, real retail um, bricks and mortar stores. Um, we're seeing that with a number of results. Um, John, do you uh, want to – no, sorry. Uh, yes. Um, so, John, do you just want to just, just give us a top line there on what you've seen coming out of the company's reporting? Because it's, it's – despite everyone saying that digital transformation is here and we all have to do it, every company has to do it, it's actually flipping again. It's kind of quite hard to track. What do you think is going on? I think people are enjoying getting back into the bricks and mortar retailers and actually shopping because it's not only about buying things, but it's also just about the experience about being out and about after a couple of years of lockdowns, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, which are obviously our two big consumption capitals. Uh, but you've only got to look at the Kogan results recently. They, um, they had a pretty poor result because people are shifting away from shopping online and they're going more into the bricks and mortar retail stores. I still think, though, over the medium term, structurally, the shift to online and e-commerce shopping is very much still intact. I mean, I lived in America for five years and I was using Amazon multiple times a week. And I think there's still a long way to play out for Amazon and other e-commerce retailers to basically embed themselves in the Australian economy and the consumer habits of Australians as well. So while it's taken a bit of a pullback in the short term after a massive surge to online shopping, I do think structurally over the medium term that e-commerce trend very much continues. John, how did you cope coming back from the US and not having Amazon uh, like you had it there? Are you okay? It was a strange feeling, I've got to say, because at home in America, you just, if you needed a few things, you just sort of jump online and order the toilet paper or the kids' nappies or whatever it was, some of the bigger, bulkier items. And it arrived the next day. And then here in Canberra, you're lucky to get it in a few days. So I did, it was a bit of an adjustment. It's to the point where now I'm sort of out of the habit of buying things on Amazon, unless it's a book or a gift or a costume for a party where you've got a few weeks grace time. But um, I do look forward to the day where um, it's same day or next day delivery and get whatever you need in Australia. There are all sorts of logistical challenges with that one. Sarah, what's your um, your thoughts on on this uh, retail uh, bricks and mortar versus e-com? Yeah, it has been really interesting because I think, you know, through the pandemic when we had that rapid rise of online, everyone kind of assumed that bricks and mortar were dead and this trajectory would keep going. And I think it will keep going because the convenience of online shopping, as, you know, John Josh pointed out, you know, is always going to be there. But we've seen that swing back to in-store. And I think you just have to look at Maya's first half sales results, which we just touched on earlier. But that's the price on the upside. I mean, that sent its shares to a six-year high. The CEO, John King, talked about that part of that was highlighted by people returning to stores. Online purchases were about 20% of Maya's sales, which was on almost 10% decline on the prior year. So that kind of shows you like where we're looking there, but they, they all still see online as a big part of, of their future sales. But I think the whole bricks and mortar being dead was, you know, a bit premature. Ross Greenwood, I we should wrap this thing up because I'll keep asking questions. Um, if you've got any thoughts on that retail uh, scenario, uh, give us a quick grab. But I just want to finish up really with um, your thoughts uh, on the media sector 
media companies and what they could be uh, uh, in store for um, in the coming 12 months, 18 months? I'll just finish up on that last one first because what I'm seeing is the enormous amount of capital being spent in dark warehouses and robotic warehouses in mm. Australia. So I've seen the Amazon warehouses. I've seen, you know, what Ikea's doing. Um, I've seen what Costco is doing in Australia. Um, it is really quite astonishing to see how the warehouses of Australia have really been retooled. And when you think about, say, Coles we spoke about earlier and what they're going to do with Ocado, and they will change the delivery of groceries to our stores in our major capital cities in the coming four or five years, and Woolworths will respond, um, and no doubt Aldi will go there as well. So, you know, it really is going to change the way in which we do things. And yes, it will ebb and flow as we want to go to the stores. No, we want it delivered. But the convenience that John talks about in the US, and which I've experienced there and in Europe as well, um, is really one of those things when you know your goods are going to turn up at that time, at that date, that's the nut for Australian retailers to crack here. In regards to media companies uh, in Australia, right now, they've got a pressure upon them because most of the media companies have got costs growing faster than revenues. And that's something that will keep on going. Now, partly there's the struggle to try and get the content that keeps your audiences engaged. Um, and against that, there's also the situation that, in many cases, the streaming wars have meant that there have been so many uh, different offerings around the place. If you have discretionary income being cut, there'll be decisions made as to where people go in terms of their streaming offerings and what they're prepared to pay for. Um, but you don't, can never escape the fact that you've got to have compelling content to keep the people coming back. Now, in this case, in Australia, scale is is absolutely the key. So John's employer, the Nine Group, uh, is now one of the biggest players in this space in Australia. Scale is absolutely critical uh, for media companies to survive, and in particular, to survive against the Googles and Facebooks of this world. Having sporting rights is one of the keys to that. And so the likes of Foxtel having those sporting rights and paying for those sporting rights is, is critical to their long-term survival. But as the prices keep on going up, the ability to drag enough money out of a perhaps very choppy sort of consumer advertising market, that's going to be the interesting side of it for those media companies into the future. So, you know, it is challenging, there's no doubt, um, as they try and create their own content, as they try and buy in other content from overseas, and also as obviously there's going to be consolidation in those streaming areas. But that means some powerful players are going to be able to pay an awful lot for sporting rights and also for original content into the future. And that's going to be the real key to, to the promotion and also to the uh, to the sponsorship of those uh, of those media products in the future. So, if we sum up the uh, the conversation, I think it's it's uh, the outlook is very choppy, very challenging, even confusing, but not a recession. Um, so, it was it really uh, enlightening conversation. Um, Ross Greenwood, Sky News, John Keogh, AFR, Sarah Jane Tasker, the West Australian. Thanks, great conversation. And I think maybe in six months we'll work out whether we knew anything or not. We'll we'll have another roundup. Thanks for joining. Thanks. Thank you. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 audio edition to listen for free. Listener.